Hello, welcome back to the Deep Overstock Fiction Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Santiago, and this week we have a special episode celebrating release of Deep Overstock, Issue 14, Magic. This is a three-part series, and it concludes with The Prestige, featuring work by Shireen Aurora, Lynette Espacito, Ryan Shane Lopez, Walter Moon, and yours truly, Michael Santiago. Opening tonight, we have Synchrony by Walter Moon. Walter Moon has been lost in books since birth and bookselling in one way or another for almost 20 years. Living in Portland with his partner, Nat, and their companion, Mishka, he strives to find the key to immortality but has trouble locating the keys to his own house. Now, here's Synchrony by Walter Moon. Synchrony by Walter Moon Z felt the oxygen rush through her body as she began the Sim-Go breathing technique. Her rapid breaths pumped her veins with life and jettisoned this newly invigorated blood throughout her internal depths. She felt her entire body. She silenced her mind completely. Everything that she controlled, utterly dedicated to the moment. The moment split, ripping open the fabric of time and allowing her to enter another cosmic plane. In this plane, time was meaningless and ethereal. Moments passed over eons, and centuries ended with the snap of a finger. Z's being aligned. Now complete, her consciousness stepped back through the portal and into her corporeal body as she exhaled her final breath of Sim-Go. Z opened her eyes and set the arrow free from her top bowstring. She closed her eyes again as the arrow soared up through the clouds, over the floating castle's parapets, between a crack in the keep's walls, arced down and slashed the king's throat, landing stiffly in the stone ground of the throne room as the despot bled out. Our next piece is That Shallow, Musty Gray, Almost Stagnant Creek by Shireen Aurora. Shireen Aurora is an Arizona resident. She likes to explore various art forms such as painting, calligraphy, writing poetry, playing the piano, and learning Indian classical dance. Now, here's That Shallow, Musty Gray, Almost Stagnant Creek by Shireen Aurora. That Shallow, Musty Gray, Almost Stagnant Creek by Shireen Aurora. People warned that the creek was magical, yet none could describe the sorcery of it. People warned that the creek in the forest was magical, but magic is not real. It's a supposition to frighten children, a myth created by people, a surmise woven by folklore, certainly not real. People warned that the shallow, musty gray creek was magical, but the only thing that looked special were the rocks. Rocks as far as the eye could see, lining the creek. Porous coral rocks and ancient stratified rocks and solid crustal rocks and gray rough-cut rocks. Moss-covered rocks and glass-like jagged rocks and slippery flat rocks and sun-baked brown rocks. People warned that the almost stagnant creek was magical, but magic is not real. So I leaped over the creek, hopped over the rocks, 
danced as I mocked the notion of the creek with magical abilities. But what happened next is lost in history. I slowly started to vanish. From my toes, to my ankles, to my shins, to my knees, to my thighs, to my body, to my arms, to my neck, to my chin, to my ears, nose, and then to my eyes. It felt like I was falling. My body stalked still. My arms merged with my torso. My eyes cemented to my face. Finally, the realization hit me. I had turned into a rusty red rounded rock, devoured by the magic of the creek. And now I whisper my warning to the trees, the birds, the frogs, the air, the wind, the sun, the clouds, anyone who listens. The creek is magical. Next up is the piece Marco Believed in Magic by Lynette Esposito. Lynette Esposito has been published in Poetry Quarterly, Inwood, Indiana, Walt Whitman Project, That Literary Review, North of Oxford, among many others. She was married to Attilio Esposito. Now, here is Marco Believed in Magic by Lynette Esposito. Hello, this is Lynette Esposito from Mount Laurel, New Jersey. I'm going to read Marco Believed in Magic. It is a story about perception. Marco believed in magic. Marco had schizophrenia. He thought he was magic. When he walked down the street, when he was in his normal state, he acted with kindness. He gave the few coins his sister gave to him to the ones with signs that said, Hungry. He wasn't hungry, at least not today. At breakfast, he had three eggs sunny side, five pieces of crisply fried bacon, four pancakes smothered in syrup and butter, and one sausage. He would have had more sausages, but the babies, little Melissa, five, and Derek, four, liked them. His sister, Big Melissa, loved it when he ate, so he ate as much as he could. No coffee, though. Coffee made him act crazy. On Tuesday a week ago, he made multiple mistakes. The first mistake was that he drank one and a half cups of straight coffee. Then he made a second mistake. He left home alone. That was the day he discovered how magical he was. He took off his clothes except for his Hanes boxers. This was his third mistake. He would have been faster and not weighted down if he had taken off all of his underwear. People gathered with cell phones raised like salutes. Do it, do it, they chanted. He didn't know what they meant. The police came and he hugged both of them. He knew them. They knew him. They put their arms around him and led him to their police car. They were going to take him home. The crowd chanted, leave him alone, over and over. Marco smiled and waved. He bowed. He felt like a king. I am magical, he told Officer Jim. I know, Jim nodded. It started to drizzle. Marco shivered. He was sensitive to water. It made him feel afraid. Officer Dan patted his shoulder. Me too, he said. Water makes me nervous. 
Officer Dan looked over Marco's shoulder at the big bridge in front of them and shook his head. The crowd grew quiet. The sudden silence stunned Marco. He felt betrayed and struggled free of Officer Dan. Everyone was looking at the bridge. A woman with a small girl waved back and forth. It appeared they were struggling. Then someone flew. Then something flew downward into the water. Marco felt his magic return. He struggled free of Officer Dan. That little girl needed her dolly. He thought of little Melissa and big Melissa, and he was off. The water was cold. He moved on instinct, plunging toward the dolly. He kept his breathing steady as he went under the bitter water. He had her or something. It was so light, like a limp piece of water-soaked cloth. He heard cheering as his head broke the water's surface, and he took a deep magical breath, sucking in all the air he could. A rope was lowered to him, but it looked like a snake, and he was afraid to take hold of it. The crowd chanted, take it, take it, and his magic overcame his fear. With one hand he grabbed the rope, while with the other he held on to the wet cloth that dripped all over him as he was pulled free from the darkness around him. The crowd went wild with glee as he handed the soaked fabric to Officer Jim, who laid it on the ground and began kissing it. Odd, Marco thought, a grown man kissing wet cloth. Officer Dan put an arm around Marco and said, That a boy. Someone in the crowd gave him a blue blanket to put on. It felt like a cape and it was warm. Officer Jim looked up at the sky. Marco thought he saw Officer Jim's lips move. The paisley figure spurted some water and began moving. Officer Jim nodded and bowed his head. The cloth sat up. That's when Marco confirmed to himself that he was magical. The piece of cloth became a little girl. He did that. Marco raised his arms like Rocky in that old movie. An ambulance arrived and the little girl was taken away. Officer Dan put his arm around Marco. I'll walk with you, he said. Let's get you home. Next is the piece Five Seed Swindle by Ryan Shane Lopez. Ryan Shane Lopez is an English teacher with an MFA in fiction from Texas State University. His writing has appeared in numerous magazines. He lives in Texas with his wife, Hannah, and has two daughters. Now, here's Five Seed Swindle by Ryan Shane Lopez. Five Seed Swindle by Ryan Shane Lopez. The story is from Jacob's Jack and the Beanstalk and Christ's Parable of the Rich Man and Lazarus and others. There once lived a young prince who, after his five elder brothers had each met an untimely death and his father had fallen ill, took over the daily affairs of the kingdom. He placed a heavy burden upon his subjects and never lifted a finger to help even the least of them. By the fruit of their toil, the prince built for himself a splendid manor. Daily he feasted sumptuously and clothed himself with fine purple linen while his people fought against the ground. One day, 
A peasant boy named Jimmy staggered up to the prince's gate, dragging behind him a white cow so thin that he had taken to using her ribs as a washboard. The boy sat at the gate and refused to leave until he spoke with the prince, no matter how the guards beat and threatened him. When at last the prince descended to the gate, holding a goblet of wine in one hand and gnawing on a leg of lamb in the other, the boy pleaded his case. "'Have mercy, my lord. My mother is sick and starving. We have no food and no family. Daily I gather the crumbs from our neighbor's table for her to eat and chase away the dogs who come to lick her sores. This morning... She sent me to market and forbade me to return home until I sold this, our last milk cow. No one would buy her, for she no longer gives milk. But in your house, she would surely grow fat and give milk again. Might you, who have riches to spare, give me five pounds for her? The prince had no need of cattle, but he had grown bored of late and decided to play a trick on the boy. Throwing the unfinished leg of lamb in the dirt, he reached into his purple robe and produced a small alabaster box. Opening it, he showed the boy five tiny seeds inside. Pounds, no, he said. But I will swap you these five seeds. A cloud passed over the boy's face. Fret not, continued the prince, for these seeds were given me by my old governess, who, between you and me, had some giant blood in her veins. If the stories she told were true, whosoever plants these seeds in the ground will never want for anything so long as they live. As you can see, I already want for nothing. So I will part with these enchanted seeds for your poor mother's sake. Although his intentions were false, the prince's words were not entirely so. The governess had, in fact, given one seed to each of his elder brothers on the day they came of age, but had provoked his jealousy by giving him an alabaster box instead. After each untimely death, the prince had taken the brother's seed for himself. He had never believed his governess's stories, however, for the old biddy's mind had been as wobbly as a loose wagon wheel. Besides, he saw no reason for keeping the seeds now that everyone who knew their significance was dead. Jimmy, who was still young enough to believe in fairy tales, snatched up the alabaster box and ran home to tell his mother of their good fortune. Some time after, Jimmy returned to the prince's gates. When the prince went down to meet him, Jimmy handed him a single gold coin, the purity of which he had never seen. How did you come by this boy? asked the prince. The boy told this story. When I showed my mother the seeds you gave me, she chided me from dusk until midnight. Since we had nothing else, we ate the seeds for dinner. We had two apiece, but I could not find the fifth and judged it must have fallen out as I ran. The next morning, mother sent me to town to sell the alabaster box. Along the way, I crossed through a neighbor's field and noticed a mustard tree, which had not been there before. Already it came up to my chin and appeared to grow taller every second. I went straight to the owner of that field, who sold it to me for the alabaster box and our cottage and 
all we owned. Then I fetched mother and took her to live beneath the mustard tree, which by then stood as tall as a house and was growing still. On the third morning, the tree top tickled the underbelly of passing clouds and whole flocks of birds nested in its branches. Curious, I began to climb and even as I climbed, it grew. At its highest point, I discovered a magnificent castle floating among the clouds. From the castle gates, I saw a woman arrayed in a dress which shone like the sun and a twelve-pointed crown which glittered like starlight. On her hands and knees, she was searching the castle courtyard by the light of her dress. For I had climbed so long that night had fallen. I called to the shining woman, and when she came to the gate, I saw she must be a head taller than the tallest man alive. Well, at this the prince recoiled, for he knew this woman to be his old governess, who had died by his hand after accusing him of murdering his brothers. The shining woman had lost a coin, and she invited me in to help her search for it, Jimmy continued. When I found it, she rejoiced by hosting a feast in her banquet hall and sitting me at the head of her table. The hall and the flood and the guests were all so divine that I could not paint their beauty if ten thousand poets' tongues were my brushes, but I would trade all my days in this world for another hour at that splendid table. Afterward, the shining woman gave me not one, but ten gold coins, more than enough to build my mother a new cottage and care for her properly. I offer you one of these coins now for the kindness you have shown my mother and me. The prince accepted the coin with humility in his mouth and envy in his heart, scheming how he might gain for himself the riches of the floating castle. Yet he dared not climb the tree, for he feared the giantess in the sky more than any man or beast upon the earth. "'Will you climb the mustard tree again?' he asked young Jimmy. "'Surely the lady of the castle would be pleased to hear how you have used her gift to provide for your poor mother.' Jimmy, in his awe and wonder, had forgotten to mention his mother to the giantess and agreed he should visit her again, if only to express his gratitude. Three days later, he returned to the prince's estate. This time he brought with him a pearl of inestimable value. He claimed that on hearing of his mother's condition, the shining woman had given him a golden oyster, which would produce such a pearl any time he asked for one. The pearl so enamored the prince that he offered the boy everything he owned in exchange for it. It is already yours, said the boy, for the kindness you have shown my mother and me. Heaven knows no gratitude like yours, flattered the prince, though he believed the golden oyster to be his by all rights. He might have arrested the boy and seized all his possessions then and there, but he wanted to see what other treasures his old governess might be hoarding. I had hoped the shining woman would have provided a remedy for your mother's ailments. Surely it is not beyond her power to ease the suffering of the afflicted. Seeing the wisdom of the prince's words, Jimmy agreed to climb the tree a third time. After three more days, the boy returned with a vial of sparkling rainwater, which the shining woman had drawn from a well in the first cloud God ever made. This water, which had never touched 
This water, which had never once touched the earth, was so pure that one drop had not only healed his mother, but had restored all the vitality and beauty of her bygone youth. It is yours, said the boy, offering the vial to the prince. I want for nothing now. May you show all your subjects the same kindness you have shown my mother and me. The prince saw within reach his deepest desires, the unending wealth of the golden oyster and the unending health of the virgin rainwater. He needed only to rid himself of Jimmy and the mustard tree, for the prince was not content to only have these treasures for himself, but needed to ensure no one else, not a soul but himself, ever got close to them. Now that she is well, he said, Will you take your mother to meet her benefactor in the sky? The idea thrilled young Jimmy, for he longed to share the wonders of the floating castle with his beloved mother, and he ran off to tell her. The next morning, the prince went to the giant mustard tree, which was not hard to find since it could be seen from anywhere in the kingdom. As expected, the boy had taken his mother up to the tree and left unattended the cottage he'd built at its base. The prince went in and stole the remaining gold coins in the enchanted oyster. Then he summoned his father's soldiers, about a thousand in all, armed them with freshly sharpened axes, ordered them to chop down the mustard tree, then bind its stump with iron and bronze. After a day and night of chopping, the giant tree came crashing down, crushing to dust all but 144 of the soldiers. Back at his manor, the prince asked the golden oyster for a pearl, but it would not open. He asked in every combination of tone and words he could imagine, but it would not open. He asked in every foreign language he could speak, but still it would not open. Day after day, he pleaded for a pearl until he grew so frustrated that he tried to pry open the oyster with his fingers. It slipped and sliced deep cuts into both his hands. Enraged, the prince drew his sword and smashed the oyster with its hilt. Shards of the golden shell flew up and lodged in his face. Crying out in pain, he took out the vial of virgin rainwater and drank. But he was not healed. The golden shards in his face grew larger and lodged themselves deeper into his flesh, even into his bone. The cuts in his hands filled up with gold, which hardened so that he could not close his fists. He dropped the vial, shattering it against the stone floor. Desperate to ease his pain, he fell to his knees to lap up the rainwater, which, having touched the ground, had lost its purity. Just then, the prince heard the clamor of voices, and looking out his window saw a mob of angry peasants approaching his gate. He had under his command now only 144 soldiers, whose loyalty was waning fast. Seeing that his gates would not long overcome the mob, the prince escaped through a secret passage and fled to his father's castle. But he found no help there. On seeing his son's hideous appearance, the king cursed him. Furthermore, on hearing of the rainwater which might have healed him, had the prince not kept it for himself, the king had his son stripped of his crown and purple linens before casting him out. Disowned and disfigured, the former prince sat among the beggars outside the castle gates, 
When the people saw him there, they overpowered him, dug their fingers into his flesh, and ripped the gold from his face and hands. No matter how much gold they tore out, it always grew back, and the pain of the tearing and regrowth was unbearable. So the once rich and powerful prince fled the town and wandered seven years alone in the wilderness, filling his belly with the grass of the field and quenching his thirst with the dew of heaven. One day, seeking refuge, he returned to the mustard tree. Although it had fallen, its leaves and branches had continued to flourish, producing thousands of seeds and giving shelter to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. There he found the boy's white cow, which he had let loose to starve in the wilderness, now grown fat off the leaves of the mustard tree. Longing to fill his aching belly, the former prince tried to milk the cow, but could not close his hands around her teats. So he tried to suckle from the cow like a newborn babe, but the shards protruding from his face cut the cow's teat and she ran away. Humiliated, he wept and cried out to the heavens, asking that he might die. In reply, he heard, echoing through the clouds, a joyous and full-hearted laughter. Listening, he recognized the voice of the peasant boy, Jimmy, joined by a second voice, which must be his mother's. He called out, asking to remember his kindness to them and send help. The clouds parted, and his old governess appeared to him as a shining giantess. They cannot hear you, her voice thundered. They are at home in my halls now, where they enjoy every happiness and comfort. Have mercy, my lady, pleaded the former prince, for I am in anguish. Let Jimmy draw a cup of the virgin rainwater and lower it down to me, that I might drink and be healed. The distance is too great, she called down. He has no rope nor anything else long enough to reach you, and you have cut down the mustard tree, the only bridge between here and there. But even if you drank of the virgin rainwater, it would not grant you the relief you seek, for rain makes grow only that which dwells in the soil, and a seed can only sprout what it already contains. Within the boy's mother there had survived a measure of youth and beauty, so that one drop of the water caused that youth and beauty to grow and fill her whole being until there remained no room for the roots of sickness. But the soil of your heart has gone bad, for you have spent your days cultivating nothing but greed and selfishness. If you will not help me, then help my father, who will surely regain his health now that I am no longer there to dose his meals with poison. I beg you, send the boy to warn him against the folly of greed and arrogance. I tell the truth, if he will not learn from your example, then he will not listen, even if a voice speaks to him from the heavens. Then the shining lady vanished among the clouds and spoke to him no more. And last up, my piece, Beyond the Velvet, written by Michael Santiago, yours truly, and narrated by me. Beyond the Velvet. Venue upon venues, theaters sold out before ticket prices were disclosed. 
the time of entrepreneurial entertainers in Victorian England was at an all-time high. Some were high with the notion of fame. Others were drunk with it. But Salazar, stoic and steady, reached the pinnacle of the arcane within a breath of four years, a notable feat for the inconsequential act of pre-planned illusion. He never wavered or backed down at the alluring prospect of reaching the grand stage, the Mother Maiden. It welcomed only a few, yet it spread out even fewer elitists. Demand often exceeded maximum occupancy. The grandiose interior was cobbled with silk curtains woven in Egypt, timber floors crafted by the Dutch, a stage designed by the French, and jade sculptures carved in China. The theater was an international display of fine, exotic imports, end of colonialist might. Glamour struck the hall as guests poured in to see the next would-be wonder. Gestures, magicians, ventriloquists, musicians, and cabaret dancers crowded the inner bowels backstage, waiting for their grand entrance to elicit resounding applause. Among the hopeful, Salazar and his wife, Mina, tinkered with artifacts unique to their performance. They prepared as he anxiously awaited his name to be called to the center stage. Meanwhile, she began to fill a four-meter-tall tank with water, the instrument for the grand finale. Turning to her husband, she said, Do you really think we have a chance here? We are out of our league. I mean, look, look around. An auspicious look took over as he turned to his wife. He said, Mina, our act, our magic is going to transcend one's pigmentation and creed. With what I have concocted, they will forget what we even look different to them. Interrupted by trumpets, the presenter regurgitated the usual verbose introduction voice beyond the curtains and yelled, Ladies, gents, are you prepared to be blown right out of your seats, Bryce? We have a delectable lineup of talented performers to pour through these halls. From jesters, and yes, heckling is permitted, to those who manipulate the unexplainable. I am Taylor Smith, captain of this ship, and I welcome you to the grandest arena in all of England. The Mother Maiden! Echoes of applause resounded throughout as the performers were making last-minute adjustments to their act. Salazar, emboldened, raised his hand towards his face as a sliver of light escaped the main stage and shone on the pair. Momentarily using a spotlight, engorged by his wife's beauty, he snatched her in for a kiss and said, Do not worry. Tonight is where things take a turn for the better. Taylor capitalized on his status as the premier host in all of Sussex. He reveled in it. The audience admired him for his dashing looks, tenacity, and charm. To him, he was Julius Caesar peering into his gladiatorial arena atop his podium. With more fame than those presenting, he often berated those lacking similar complexions or from far-off lands, and his felicious quips never failed to give the crowd a spectacle. Taylor sardonically stated, Up next, we present a new face! one unlike any we were sure to see on this grand stage. Let him mystify you with unexplainable politics from the savage lands to the east, a land that will undoubtedly be gobbled up by our glorious matriarch soon enough. Without further ado, give a round of applause, if you'd like, for Salazar Houdini, master of the Persian arts. Passing the satin velvet flaps aside, Salazar walked on stage and offered a pretentious bow to a displeased audience. Met with booing, he formed a gleeful grin and gestured for an assistant to accompany him. Mina rolled out a large faux emerald chest. Reaching her hand inside, she pulled out a pair of finches from a brass wire cage. Salazar grabbed one finch per hand, showing the onlookers that they were ordinary birds. 
Then he clapped and rubbed his hands together as the audience bore a unifying grimace. Horrified by the act, a heckler shouted, Is this what you primitive animals do where you're from? The crowd's response was unnerving, but he maintained the fluidity of his act and displayed both palms. Untainted by what appeared to be Finch's sacrifice, his hands were clean. Bewildered to what had happened, the attendees loosened up and looked on with curiosity. As he stated to hum a melancholic tune, he called for the two finches to reveal themselves. One beak, and then a second, prodded their way out of the top of his hat. They chirped and fluttered around the hall as Salazar began to grin. Pleased with the applause, he took a more genuine bow and looked over to wink at his wife. Grimace morphed to astonishment. The audience hypnotized by the flitter of the finches beckoned for more. Salazar whispered into his Mina's ear, Honey, I think we can skip to the final act, the alternative one. You remember the protocol, don't you? We haven't practiced that trick enough. What about the underwater disappearing act we planned for? She suggested. Look at them. They're stupefied, mystified. We've yet to feed them a sliver and they are begging for more. We came to this stage to show them that they are wrong about us. Let us give them an act they'll never forget, he replied. The begrudged presenter hesitantly began to clap, rallying the audience for another trick. There we have it! A dazzling show of magic by the likes of these two. What say you? Shall we have more? Taylor yelled. An unsaturated crown began to shout for the show to continue. Grinning at the audience, Taylor tossed his left arm in the air and shouted, Bravissimo! Let's continue the show. What a candid nod. Salazar urged Mina to get the instrument for the final act. She reached back into the emerald chest and clenched the grip of a howdah pistol. Handing the gun to Salazar, she paced backwards for five meters and stopped. Salazar looked to the audience and raised the pistol with a firm grip. Bouncing his gaze throughout the hungry crowd, he said, This is the resurrection. Two shots from the barrel of this gun would be enough to dispatch even the ferocious, ferocious beast. But tonight, I will use this weapon on my wife. Do not be alarmed, for her death shall be temporary. The plan was foolproof. Load two blanks into the weapon and spin the illusion of death. She had two squibs filled with goat blood strapped to her chest. Both were connected to a pull string that would induce this murder mirage. And then with a phony incantation, she would rise and walk back over to her husband, seemingly denying her the passage down the river Styx. The audience would be none the wiser. Whoa, whoa, now, Salazar. There's no need to slay your wife in front of these fine folk. Are you sure you two can't just settle on divorce? Taylor quipped. The audience chuckled and Salazar said, All the good things must come to an end. Isn't that right, Mr. Smith? A magic man and the comedian. We've got a special one here, folks, Taylor replied. In an uproar, the crowd began to dancing. As Salazar closed his eyes, the tension of the trigger tightened until the pop of two rounds exited the barrel. The act appeared to be a success. Mina fell right on cue and a goat blood pooled around her. She was so still, even managing to hold her breath to avoid any movement. 
He waved his hands in a regular pattern and began reciting an ancient Parsi hymn intended to raise the dead. Clapping three times, in a circular motion, he called for his wife to return to her body and rejoin the mortal realm. Yet she didn't budge. It appears this Persian hocus-pocus of yours needs a little fine-tuning, <laughs> Taylor chuckled. Unamused, Salazar walked over to Mina and recited the passage again. Yet nothing occurred. Still no breath. No movement. Love, the love. This isn't the time for this. We, we need to finish the act, he whispered. Tapping her forearm, he noticed the squib still intact and that the blood was her own. Shocked and terror-stricken, his mouth gaped and his eyes became lifeless. Redirecting his gaze to the crowd, the harsh, blinding spotlights revealed that the trick had failed. Taylor walked over to Salazar and whispered, Pity, your magic didn't seem to work this time. Ladies and gents, there seems to be some technical difficulties, so an intermission is in order. Please stock up on refreshments, light up a fag, and use the washroom. The show will recommence in 15 minutes, Taylor said to the audience. Kneeling before his wife, Salazar picked her up and began walking her breathless body off stage. However, before he could exit, Taylor tapped him on the shoulder and said, Thank you. Now get this savage bitch out of here. Oh, and before I forget, I don't know how you managed to call on your way to this premiere, but you will not be stepping foot at any stage in Sussex, let alone the whole of England, magical man or not. Oh, then take your voodoo shit back to whatever hole you slithered out of. A rebuttal eluded him, as his mind was preoccupied with the macabre, and of the words he uttered backstage minutes ago. With a deep gulp, he stumbled towards the exit. He was draped in disbelief consumed by the chagrin. Carrying the cadaver, he bellowed as his back collapsed against the wall. The weight of remorse grew heavier than the body. Staring into Mina's eyes, hollow, unoccupied gaze, looked back. Unbeknownst to Salazar, he grieved adjacently to Taylor's dressing room. A muffled commotion could be heard from within. He placed the body gently onto the ground and planted his ear firmly against the dressing room. The chatter became clear as he heard Taylor say, can you believe these people? Well, only one remains, and after tonight, he'll take care of himself and his dead bitch back to his desert land. Far, far from here. They have no place in this country and never will. Just a shame we cannot do this grand act again. It's not like Sir Isaac Newton to replace the blanks with a live rounds without anyone noticing. Replace the live rounds. Replace the live rounds. Salazar repeated. He jerked back, backing away from the door, looking at his wife once more. Mortification morphed to menace swiftly. Now riddled with scorn, he marched back to the stage to retrieve the pistol. Gleaning over the weapon, he tucked it into the left pocket of his lavender show coat. Exiting the stage, his trumpet signaled the end of intermission. Faint steps in the distance grew louder as Taylor approached the velvet curtains. Brushing his hand in his hair with a pompous smirk, he stepped beyond the velvet with a grand gesture of self-importance. He flailed his hands in a flamboyant fashion as he pranced around the stage. The theater slowly repopulated as everyone began to find their seats. Taylor took a momentary pause from his shenanigans and shouted, Please, everyone, be seated. We have a wonderful show for you. 
our next act will be a delightful and disgusting. A French contortionist capable of dislocating every bone in his body under a mysterious guise and under an even stranger moniker. Everyone, welcome the mandible to the stage. The burly Frenchman walked on stage, raising his arms in the air to hype the crowd. He placed one hand on his jaw and snapped it to the left. It hung in place, bound by loose skin. Grotesque consumed the crowd as they looked on. Backstage, Salazar scrambled to find Taylor's dressing room. Rummaging through each drawer, he tossed the place upside down in pursuit of a single lead bullet. Behind a door, an idle coat rack had yet to be checked. Reaching into the side pocket, he pulled out a single round and loaded it into the pistol. Sweaty palms clenched the ironclad grip as he exited the room. On stage, the mandible snapped every finger back into place with a spine-tingling crack. He roared at the crowd, inciting applause for every bone popped. Master at repugnance, Taylor joked. Folks, I'm close to spewing my own breakfast. Lingering behind the curtains, Salazar stormed the stage for one final act. Squinting down the sights, he aimed the pistol at Taylor and fired. Taylor slowly drifted his view down to his abdomen, placed both hands onto his gut. Spewing blood over breakfast, he turned around to see Salazar lower the gun. And as he fell to his knees, he muttered, You'll hang from the gallows, savage. Peering into the audience, collapsed face first. As the blood pooled around him and the smoke from the barrel dissipated, the audience gave a standing ovation. Salazar turned to the crowd as they chanted for more. As he squinted from the blinding rays of lights from above, he began to wonder who the real savages were. This concludes our three-part series featuring the work from amazing writers from all walks of life in our special issue based on magic. This concludes The Prestige and our special event celebrating the release of our 13th issue of Deep Overstock, Magic. You've been listening to the Deep Overstock Fiction Podcast. Our theme music is the song Shibuya by Bad Snacks. Don't forget to submit for our next issue, Shakespeare, before November 30th. And visit deepoverstock.com slash submissions for specific guidelines. 